morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution and my wonderful collaborator, scholar, and gentleman this morning on this beautiful Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're in the we're wrapping up our series on a new constitution, and we're going to explain that uh, we're not actually proposing a literal new constitution. We're, we're talking about the ideas that need to be behind thinking through why we are in the mess we are in. And I think most Americans uh, that are being polled have said, we're in a bad state, and actually that uh, the average American is looking to the future and say, it doesn't look like it's going to improve given the, the current uh, crop of uh, political creatures down there in Congress and then the White House and so on. And uh, so most Americans admit there is a problem and, and a serious problem. We recognize that we have had a, uh, a government attack upon we, the people, and upon our God-given rights. And that attack, most notably in the days of COVID, um, demonstrated that uh, the government sees that it, it really has no limits on its power or it gets to define whatever those limits might be, which uh, basically is a definition of tyranny. When the government defines it, the limits of its power and we, the people, have nothing to say, we just have to bow down and take it. Well, that's the tyranny, and we have seen that, that tyranny and the disaster that it's brought to our country. By the way, let me just give you a little snippet of where we're headed as we wrap up this series on the new Constitution. This week, this Friday, next Friday, we're beginning a brand new series. And that series is going to look at the crimes that have been committed against we the people in, well, whether you want to call it the COVID tyranny or the, the insanity of 2020, 2021, and, and so on. But uh, many, many things were done to we the people. Many violations of our Constitution, of our God-given rights took place uh, uh, in whatever you want to call that, the COVID era, I guess is the term that many people use. And it's important for us to look at those. Because I can assure you, the bureaucrats and the tyrants who pulled off that fraud against we, the people, in 2020, 2021, they're not content to back off on that tyranny. In fact, we saw plenty of signs of that, even in the midst of that tyranny, that they were going to go as far as they possibly could, except there was resistance from we, the people. And so it's very important for us to understand what it was they did to us and how what they did to us was a violation of our Constitution, a violation of our God-given rights, so that we never allow that to happen again. And indeed, we the people can stop tyranny in its tracks if we understand uh, what it's about and we understand the limits that the laws of nature and nature's God place upon uh, a civil government, and furthermore, the limits that our constitutional republic places upon our civil government at the federal level, as well as our state constitutions at the state level, if we, the people, understand these things and we are ready with that armament, basically, of knowing what our rights are, knowing what the Constitution is, we can stop tyranny. And I believe they're going to attempt to roll out tyranny in perhaps a different fashion than they did because they figure, well, we fooled them once. Uh, well, if we're going to fool them a second time, we better do it in a little different fashion than we did last time where they'll catch on too easily. So anyway, we'll be starting a, a series next week, which really we're calling for a Nuremberg 2.0. Uh, 
that the criminals who conducted this uh, violation of the law and the violation of our God-given rights be brought to justice. So we, we invite you to join us for that series uh, starting next Friday morning at 8 a.m. And also, have your thoughts on that, we would welcome those as well. I invite you to use my personal email, dwhitney, that's D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts as we uh, wrap up this series on the new Constitution? The concluding thoughts is a wonderful way to reflect what has not been adequately covered in this series and to return to the underlying principles of limited federal government. Aaron Cariotti has an exceptional insight into the latter in his recent book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And he states, there is a human right not sustained in any constitution, the right to truth. The right has been more systematically trammeled over the last three years during the height of the COVID-19 control program. Why, I ask, did our public health authorities acknowledge truths only after the damage from the lies had already been done? Only, for example, after tens of thousands lost their jobs due to coercive mandates that did nothing to advance public health. Who will hold our leaders accountable for this? The pursuit of truth is a demanding exercise that is beyond the best written constitution. Constitutions can only remove some of the obstacles to pursuing truth. The rest must be done by inquiring critical minds that risk cancellation, to use a modern term, by those driven by the propaganda of the special interests that have historically been served by government. Before delving into those concluding thoughts, let's reflect upon what we have been attempting to do in this series. We have artificially built a new constitution for the United States, not to initiate a political movement, but to provoke thinking about the role of constitutions as foundations for the rule of law in a free society. Of all the realms of human action, law is the most coercive. Indeed, in the most extreme case, violation of law could cost one's life. Its existence is necessary for humans to three to, to thrive in other realms of human action to include the realm of mutually beneficial voluntary exchange or the free market. But to be fully human, one must be able to act simultaneously in all realms of human action, each having its own set of rules. In, in civilized societies, the sets of rules are mostly consistent but occasionally seem to be in conflict. In the free market, the normal rule is that failure to pay a debt, such as a car payment or mortgage, automatically exposes the debtor to consequential action, such as the loss of the car or the residence. Creditors will often temporarily excuse these responsibility lapses, not because the law requires it, but, but because they are simultaneously acting in other realms of uh, such as civility, charity, mercy, and the ultimate realm of human action, reconciliation. To reach our full human potential, we must act in all these realms simultaneously. The law, therefore, should be constructed with prudence. It cannot create a utopian society. The foundation of law we have discussed in this series is to allow humans to act in all of these realms. There's no place in this structure of law for a federal government to impose a single standard for toilet tank capacity or light bulb efficiency. Not that we should not strive to optimize these technologies, but not by a top-down elite. Today, we are an information-based society, using keyboards to enter our thoughts and see others' thoughts on display uh, screens. We take for granted the character set we use, which is called Unicode. Unless we have been in the information systems industry and know its history, 
We're probably not aware that the one-time giant of the industry, IBM, sought to impose its own proprietary character set, EDC, DIC, on the industry. <clears throat> An alternative standard was called ASCII. While there are technical reasons for the differences between the two sets, the implications of having the major supplier dictate the character set for the remainder of the industry were ominous. In 1961, Bob Beamer of IBM submitted a proposal to the American National Standards Institute for a common computer code. On June 17, 1963, ASCII was approved as the American Standard. Note that the American National Standards Institute is a private, nonprofit organization that oversees the development of voluntary consensus standards for products. Today, the digital world runs on a character set standard, a descendant of ASCII, that did not require the federal government to coerce the industry to standardize. The first key to the construction of a just system of law in a free society is thus to describe a constitution that grants only necessary powers to a federation of fully sovereign member states. Basic idea is to distribute power down to the lowest reasonable level, a principle called subsidiarity. It is, old, it is the only way counter, uh, to counter the human nature that Lord Action captured in his famous quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super add the tendency of certainty of corruption by authority. Centralization of power in government increases corruption. It also has a tendency to produce both bad men and women who take advantage of the public's trust in order to reward themselves and their friends through their governmental offices. More than a century earlier, Montesquieu attempted to describe the system of governments of governance based on the British model of limited monarchy in the spirit of laws. The system employed the principle of separation of powers into legislative, executive, and judicial functions. It also provided for checks and balances, such as the popularly elected House of the Legislature controlling the purse by granting it the power to define new sources of revenue for the government. Montesquieu was realistic about the limits of republics beyond a certain size. Once they became too large, they became imperialistic, and the republican form of government is discarded in form of the imperial. When the original United States were defined, were formed from the uh, former 13 British colonies, each was truly a sovereign nation by itself. Most of the founders envisioned that these states would expand from the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans. They had a continental mission that clearly conflicted with Montesquieu's limited-sized republics. Montesquieu's perspective was European. And as much as he was respected by the founders of the United States, theirs was the new land of opportunity and experimentation. <clears throat> Could a nation potentially continental retain Republican principles in a new federation? Two distinct lines of thought emerged from those long, uh, times. Curiously, and curiously, they collaborated to persuade the newly formed states to promote the new federation in the Federalist Essays, authored primarily by Hamilton and Madison. There were two fundamental ideas underlying their creation. The first, confederation of sovereign states, granting limited enumerated powers to a federation. And second, a common market that preceded the European mar uh, common market by 170 years. It was a powerful combination, which in spite of structural flaws identified in this series, propelled the United States from its limited colonial role 
to be an economic leader of the world. <clears throat> the flaw in the so-called birth of the nation was that there was no common vision. Almost from the beginning, stress cracks began to appear, but they were not so great that the other advantages to the new governance were overwhelmed. These cracks appeared in George Washington's first administration when his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, threw away the Federalist playbook in favor of three reports to Congress revealing his intent to establish a national rather than a federal government. He then convinced Washington that the federal government enjoyed implied powers beyond those enumerated in the Constitution. <clears throat> Washington may have made his biggest mistake in accepting Hamilton's advice over others in his cabinet. Naturally, political parties arose around these two philosophies of government. Party labels have changed since, and the two parties seem almost to have merged in building a one-party system, promoting the concentration of power at the top. What divides these parties today is the concern for who should run things, not what is best for the people. So let's talk about building a new constitution from a clean slate, which has been the, the goal of this series. <clears throat> the Meyer stress cracks have now become major threatening the whole edifice of government and flourishing stage in the economy we enjoy. <clears throat> to assume that somehow better leaders will appear through the voting scheme is madness. We don't know our current constitution, which ought to be the gold standard for measuring candidates for office. What mysticism guides us to believe government will become virtuous when we have 234 years of experience to the contrary under the current constitution? Some believe that applying Band-Aid amendments will solve the problem. <clears throat> if the problems are structural, that only postpones the day of reckoning and increases cynicism among the people the Constitution is supposed to protect. The new Constitution series was undertaken not as a political endeavor, but one of contemplation, one that turns the spotlight on the structural flaws. It is designed to initiate public dialogue. What comes out of that dialogue is for others to say. The series has been organized to describe both the current constitution and an alternative new constitution. So it is probably not necessary to learn the current constitution as a prerequisite. At this point, that is still conjecture. We will only know when we travel that road. Let's talk about <laughs> limited scope social contracts, which is the essence of the uh, <clears throat> new constitution idea. The series began with an example of governing principles and how constitutions should be created that are consistent with those principles. Constitutions are called social contracts because individuals do not enter into them. When individuals sign constitutions, they do so as representatives of the people. Constitutions theoretically bind both government officials and the people, but experience has unfortunately shown that they are more binding in practice upon the people than the officials. The best contracts are those that are limited in scope. They identify what each party is to do and the penalties for not fully executing the contract. The whole structure of statutory law has been built to assure that the people behave according to their constitution. In the case of the United States, much of that statutory law exceeds the powers originally granted to the federal government by the representatives of the people. Some of the powers granted in the constitution to the federal government were unnecessary in the short term and disastrous in the long term. For example, Amendment 14, Section 3 of the current Constitution states, No person shall be a federal official for under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as a, an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state 
to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Remember first that this amendment was ratified by the northern states after the war between the states. It certainly did not reflect the view of the southern states. Then recognize that the language is based upon a falsehood, that there was a union, a single nation, in place at the time when hostilities had broken out between the northern and southern states. There was no perpetual union. That is a concept that appeared in the Articles of Confederation and was superseded by the Constitution of 1787. Now we are faced with judicial claims that the January 6, 2021 demonstrators at the Capitol were participating in an insurrection to overthrow the federal government. Imagine that number of people, virtually unarmed, attempting to overthrow a federal government that was concentrated in one of the most militarized regions of the country. It seems the term insurrection has taken one infinite elasticity. The point is that a good contract, one that protects participating par parties while offering opportunities to all that <laughs> would not be available without the contract, a good contract specifically defines the limits and the language of the contract. If the current federal system has failed the American people, it is that it was formed under a social contract that allowed the entity being formed to be a master of the parties who formed it. The major changes in the new constitution have been designed to correct that flaw. Let's reconsider the Articles of Confederation. It is time to, reconsideration, uh, to reconsider the Articles of Confederation myth. The Articles, too, were flawed, but not in the way that historians have conveyed them. <clears throat> the myth is that unruly farmers and expatriates who fought in the War of Independence were threatening to overthrow the government of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in something called Shays' Rebellion. Early Federalists, including Hamilton, Madison, and even George Washington, were alarmed and believed that a stronger central government was necessary to prevent such up uprisings. Thus, the call for a convention in Philadelphia to create a constitution of 1787. The truth is that the rebellion was crushed in January 1787 by forces within Massachusetts never requiring outside intervention. Questions remain about the justice of Massachusetts courts seizing the farms and rebels when they had not been paid for their service in the War of Independence. But the point of the story is that there was no need to create a federal government to put down rebellions. If that was necessary, state governments were fully capable. The other myth, particularly associated with Hamilton, was that our nation's credit had deteriorated so badly Foreign creditors threatening to cut off investment funds in the newly formed United States, which were facing economic starvation. Again, the truth differs. John Adams had been successful in securing a commercial treaty and loan from the Netherlands in 1782, which was ratified in 1783. European continental nations viewed Britain as a bully and were favorably inclined to trade with merchants in the United States. At the conclusion of the War of Independence in 1783, Britain was faced with significant commercial competition and was in danger of losing what had once been a significant colonial market. It is true that Jay's treaty with Britain in 1794, five years after the creation of the new federal government, <clears throat> led to the establishment of better trade relations with Britain. But Britain had as much stake in that relationship as the United States. Understand what went right as what went uh, wrong in the Philadelphia Constitution Convention of 1787. 
we need to look at its predecessor, the Annapolis, Annapolis Convention. Wikipedia provides a description. The Annapolis Convention, formerly titled as a meeting of commissioners to remedy defects of the federal government, was a national political convention held in September 11th through 14th, 1787, 1786, at Mann's Tavern in, in Annapolis, um, in which 12 delegates from the five U.S. states, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia, gathered to, uh, to discuss and develop a consensus or reversing protectionist trade barriers that each state had erected. At the time, under the Articles of Confederation, each state was largely independent from the others, and the national government had no authority to regulate trade between and among states. Both Hamilton for New York and Madison for Virginia attended the convention, and they continued their collaboration through the subsequent Philadelphia Convention and the publishing of the Federalist Essays. Hamilton saw an opportunity <clears throat> to expand the original Federalist form of government into a top-down national government. When Hamilton addressed the First Congress with his three reports outlining his program, and convinced Washington that the federal government enjoyed implied powers, Madison moved away from Hamilton, along with Jefferson, toward a more federal form of government. The lesson in all this is that the liberty and economic prosperity enjoyed by Americans is due more to their early establishment of a potentially continental common market than to the concentration of power in a national government. I'd like to close with some comments about the Gestapo, KGB, <coughs> Stasi, and the COVID control program. This is a much bigger subject than we covered here, but it should be noted that the concentration of power in national governments tends to lead to the creation of immensely effective internal security organizations. In the past three years, Americans have been subjected to unprecedented violations to their personal liberties under the guise of biomedical security, a subject covered well by Aaron Curiati in his book, The New Abnormal. COVID-19 was pictured initially as a world-threatening pathogenic virus, and those interested in concentrating power leaped at the chance to impose new rules of behavior upon individuals and government. These were unconstitutional, of course, but never mind that. It was the role of government to keep us safe, and if liberties had to be scrapped, so be it. The problem is that new pathogens are continually discovered, and with a combination of natural bodily processes and sound medicine, we have survived well as a growing population demonstrates. To accept the government, and particularly its executive branch, is empowered to destroy individual liberty and ignore constitutions under the threat of pathogenic viruses is to accept totalitarianism. <laughs> Elsewhere in the world, we have the example of those terrible internal security mechanisms, Gestapo, KGB, Stasi in particular. And through the process of centralization of power in the federal government, we have a network of alphabet soup named internal security organizations. Even when these are initially tasked to spy on other nations, they find a way to turn their surveillance against the law abiding American citizens. Remember that the Gestapo, KGB, and Stasi did not enjoy the surveillance technology available to today's internal security organizations. They must be reined in, and they will. And that will only occur in an environment that respects a federal system of limited, enumerated powers. The idea of implied powers conflicts with liberty. And a final note, constitutions cap a mountain of statutory law that underlies them. In the best of situations, that statutory law is consistent with the associated constitution. 
that can hardly be said of the amount of statutory law that has been created within the federal system of the United States. It bears repeating, the law is only one realm of human action, but it is the most coercive. To the extent the law unnecessarily restricts voluntary human action in other realms, civility, charity, mercy, and reconciliation, it destroys the human spirit and constrains our human potential. In the final analysis, that government is best, which governs least. Amen to that, Phil, because uh, when we see the government expanding its powers as we have, oh, we can trace it back more than 150 years now, but particularly, as you as you rightly point out, the ex- enormous expansion of power that took place in 2020 and, and 2020 and fo- 2021 and following, and just egregious. And you're absolutely right to point out that while uh, the Nazis had the Gestapo, the USSR had the KGB, and the East Germans, the Stasi, well, the surveillance state that is spying on every one of us is far more enormous than that today. Uh, NSA just being one of those agencies, and uh, Edward Snowden rightly blew the whistle on that agency, is look at what they're doing. They're violating the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution on all American citizens, spying on all of us, spying on us, and uh, scooping up the contents of our email communications and all of our phone conversations and uh, all of our internet searches and all of our financial transactions, I guess, except with cash. Maybe cash is the only thing they can't trace, which, by the way, is exactly why they want to get rid of cash and move to central bank digital currency, something they can completely control. So this kind of surveillance technology that's available today is mind-boggling. They know more about us than we know about ourselves. And we should never, ever allow our civil government to become so intrusive and so violative of our God-given right. We do have a God-given right to privacy, and the federal government has no right to pry into our private uh, life. Fourth Amendment says that unless there's a crime that has been committed, and they're actually investigating that crime, which means they must have a warrant, and that search warrant must be very specific to the place to be searched, the things to be searched where they cannot go, on a fishing expedition and search for whatever they want, which is exactly what the NSA is doing for every one of us, that is illegal and it needs to be reined in. But it can only happen when the American people understand the limits that our Constitution actually places upon the civil government. And as we pointed out in the series, there are flaws in that and uh, there needs to be great strengthening of the limits that we place upon uh, the civil government. Otherwise, the civil government becomes a tyrannical master. It's amazing to me how many people today are decrying the slavery and just weeping and moaning about the slavery of 150 years ago, but are willing to say nothing about the serfdom, if you want to look at the feudal kind of imagery, that we are being made serfs on the federal plantation. That's what's happening to Americans today as we lose more and more of our freedom and also more and more of our income as the federal government not only gobbles up for the average American family 50% of the fruit of their labor, but that's only at the beginning of the measure. When you measure inflation, which more honest uh, commentators say that the inflation rate is around 15%, you consider that 15%, that means in uh, six years and a little bit, they've taken 100% of what we've made and gobbled it up, or half of that. In other words, the inflation rate it doubles in, in the six years or less at the rate that it is currently running. And that rate is in the control of our federal government. 
which controls through the Federal Reserve the interest rate and controls how much money is printed up because every dollar that is printed up reduces the value of the dollar we have already saved or invested or put in uh, the bank. So the big problem is, I think you identified this earlier, is the idea of utopia. There are people who are utopians that run our government these days. They think that human beings, by their uh, machinations and by their control grid and by things like uh, spying on us, that they can create the perfect society. And that, uh, I believe there's a book by that title, The Perennial Heresy, Utopia. The idea that human beings together can somehow create the perfect society is a lie. It is a heresy, and it's been attempted time and time again. The French attempted it with the French Revolution. What a bloodbath disaster that was. And the people of France finally decided it was such a disastrous bloodbath that they'd rather have another tyrant, Napoleon, than they had with uh, the tyrant who's actually worse in some ways than the king whose head they cut off, uh, Louis XVI. So uh, that was a disaster. Look at the USSR and, and that uh, the Russian Revolution. Again, the people who suffered under that revolution, they were better off under the czar, as bad as that was, than they were under evil beasts like Stalin and, 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 and so on. So you look at all of the attempts at utopia, whether they're governmental attempts, such as, you know, USSR, Communist China, and so on, or the private attempts. You have Robert uh, Owen establishing new harmony in, uh, in in America. I believe it was in the state of Indiana. And uh, uh, it was a disaster. Within two years, the whole thing collapsed. The commune did not work because it was not based on a realistic view of human beings. It was based on this myth, this heresy of utopia. And when we uh, follow what our founders believed and the reason why they structured our uh, system of government the way they did is they believe the biblical view of human nature, because indeed, that's what we're talking about when we talk about human civil government. James Madison put this it this way in the Federalist Paper 55, if uh, human beings were angels, you know, there'd be no need for government. Everybody would obey God's law perfectly all the time. There'd be no crime because no one would disobey God's law. There'd actually be no violence. There'd be no problems between human beings. One human being would not lie to another if we were angels. But obviously, that is not the case. And then he goes on to say that if government, the people we place in the government, they were angels. Again, that government would be perfect. And that's the that's the myth of the utopianism. They do not believe in the fallen nature of human beings. They believe that man is good, essentially, that man is perfect, which is the opposite of what our founders believe. They really believe what the prophet Jeremiah stated in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart of man is deceitful and wicked. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can fully understand how evil it is? And so they structured a system whereby the checks and balances were designed to prevent those with a fallen, sinful human nature. In other words, everyone that's going to hold office, whether it's the president or congressman or you know, a Supreme Court justice or the state governor or mayor, anybody in office, they are fallen human beings, even the best of them. If they're even a, a, a solid Christian who's grown and very mature in their faith, they're still not perfect. And there's going to be that temptation that, as you rightly pointed out, uh, Phil, that Lord Acton identified that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So even the best of human beings cannot be trusted with unchecked, unlimited power. And they, I believe, wisely designed our, our constitution 
uh, understanding those issues and seeking to structure it. And we've pointed out in this series the flaws in that, where uh, they did not see that human beings as crafty and as evil as their hearts would put up find ways around and violations of uh, that kind of structure. And boy, do we see those violations happening right before our very eyes today. Think of the two-tiered system of justice, right? Uh, the, the peaceful protesters, actual peaceful protesters that showed up on January 6th, even those who did not enter the Capitol. Therefore, there was no trespass. Goal. They did. They're winding up in prison with sentences that are absolutely ridiculous. Tens of years or dozens of years. For, for what? For being there to protest what they believe was an unjust application of the Electoral College system. They were there, rightful Americans, following their First Amendment God-given right to redress of grievances, that is, to tell the, the civil government, hey, there's a problem here. You guys are cheating on these elections, and this whole thing is a, a fraud. They're treated with a harshness beyond belief. Well, but what about the uh, the Black Lives Matters protesters who summer of 2020, a summer of love, you know? Well, what, they burned cities, they destroyed billions of dollars. They murdered people. This happened in America. And they were given, at best, a slap on the hand. We see that there's a two-tiered system of justice. Oh, look at the contrast between uh, President Trump and Biden. Biden has done far worse than, than Trump did just in terms of uh, 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 papers that are supposedly state secrets and all of that. And he's given a free pass. Well, they're still trying to put Donald Trump in jail. We have a two-tiered system of justice. Clearly, we have a government that has gone off the rails in terms of its uh, outrageous, outrageous actions. And I've already talked about the government-induced inflation going on, which is a form of theft. They're stealing from all the people who were wise and careful and saved money and invested. They're being stolen from day by day by day by the inflation that the government is in control of. How about the tyrannical thing that uh, California is trying to do, enforcing all the states to adopt vehicle, zero vehicle emission standards? That is to say, all the internal combustion engine trucks have to be gotten rid of. And the result will be that every truck that comes in and out of California, and by the way, California is not the only state that's adopted these rules, Oregon, Washington, so the whole left coast and Places on the East Coast, like Maryland, there's about uh, 16 states that are either have or are adopting these zero vehicle emissions. That is forcing it, the trucking industry to be destroyed and the, the whole uh, supply chain system to be destroyed because electric vehicles won't work in the long term in ter terms of actually transporting goods uh, to the stores. Because, you know, uh, the typical tra tractor trailer truck today, you can fill up the tank of that tractor trailer truck in 15 minutes with a diesel fuel needed to travel 1,200 miles. But take an electric vehicle, which actually can only haul 80% of the amount that the diesel truck can haul, take that electric vehicle, and it takes six hours to charge that electric vehicle and only travel about 200 miles rather than 1,200 miles. And you can see that the California is about to, in 35 days, uh, force those standards and attempt to force those standards on the whole country. These kind of actions on the part of civil government uh, are definitely against we the people. How about the outlawing of gas stoves that Biden is attempting? That's not for the good of the people. And it's clearly not a power that we the people granted to the federal government at all. And outlawing gas water heaters and oh, on and on the list goes. But the biggest thing that we see happening 
is the illegal border crossings where the government is enticing people from around the world, all the nations of the world, enticing them to come here and steal from the American people. That's right. The federal government giving free handouts, giving free transportation, free housing, free food. Who's paying for all of that? We, the people. So our government has become the criminal class, stealing from we, the people, to bring in illegal border crossers who really are designed to replace us, I believe, to replace us by uh, working at a lower wage than the American people, but most of all, replace us by ultimately being the voters who will perpetually vote for more socialism. We need to restore the principles of this constitutional republic, and we need to do that through educating Americans. And that's exactly why we exist here at We the People. The Constitution matters because it does matter. And if we the people understand these principles, and if we the people seek to restore and elect officials who understand these principles, and if we teach the next generation, we can see a revival and a restoration uh, of our constitutional republic. Well, Phil, what, what thoughts do you have on that? Uh, Pastor David, you mentioned the central bank digital currency. And in, in my mind, that is the next major battleground. Um, the next thing we know, we're going to have social sensitivity indexes like the Chinese have imposed, uh, such that, you know, if we, if we follow the rules, uh, our, our social acceptance is high and we will not be marginalized or canceled. Um, on the other hand, if we don't follow the rules, then we, we, uh, face cancellation, all kinds of, of uh, implications, negative in implications, we will not be able to survive. So it's a control mechanism that is being established. And it does two things. First, it's an extension of fiat or counterfeit money uh, with the associated inflation that comes in as a result of that. That affects young people who have been conditioned by the educational system in particular, but also the media, and the political environment. Uh, and they've been conditioned to think in terms of collectivization, um, to think in terms of big government offering this utopia, this nirvana that uh, will solve all problems. In effect, it's going to hurt them longer than it will the, the older generations, which you know still have a lot to lose from inflation, but they're not going to live as long. So there's that, that side of it. Then there is the digital currency laying the foundation for establishing a top-down system of social control. And all this Huxley's brave new world seems uh, closer than ever we would have imagined. That's a very, very dark read, a very, very dark place to go. And yet, with, with something like a digital uh, currency where everybody's uh, otherwise free transaction uh, is monitored by the state, and the state determines who is doing the right thing and who's doing the wrong thing. Is just a formula for for absolute tyranny. Mm -hmm. And indeed, you you might call it a form of slavery, a very a sophisticated form of slavery, because you can work a job, and you know money in a CBD money will go into your supposed bank account, but you really don't control that money. You can't have that money anytime you want. You can only have it, like you say, if you abide by the rules that the government imposes. And if you don't abide by those rules, they cut your money off. So that's a form of slavery. You, you don't really get to keep the fruit of your labor. And I think it, it's incumbent upon us to resist this system at every turn. 
resist the move towards a digital currency. I know that they have already in our country, in certain cities, rolled out central bank digital currency as an experiment to try to see how it's going to work and how they can perfect it. But most of all, they're trying to figure out how they can best sell this to the American people. And I think we need to resist it with every ounce of our being. And it's, it's, it, it takes a little bit of work on our part and it takes a little bit of sacrifice. Yes, it's far more convenient to swipe your credit card than to use cash. But we ought to use cash every single time and every single place we possibly can. I go to the gas station. I go in there and give them cash for how much gas I want. I refuse to use the credit card as much as possible. I try to use cash because they cannot track cash. And if we, the people, demand that we use cash at all our transactions and refuse to do business with those who will not accept cash, those businesses, if enough of us do that, those businesses will have to comply. Someone told me today that uh, Starbucks is going cash free. That is the only way you can pay is with your Apple phone or your your credit card or, you know, some electronic means. But if we say, okay, fine, I don't need your stinking high-priced coffee. That's garbage I'm not going to take because you are about enslaving the people. I'm not going to participate with a company that wants to enslave me and my children and my, my friends. No, I'm going to resist such a company. I'll go to a company that will continue to accept cash. And we ought to communicate that clearly. I mean, I don't drink Starbucks, but if somebody's a addict of Starbucks, they ought to communicate this clearly to the management of that organization, telling them, not only am I going to stop buying your garbage coffee, I'm going to encourage everybody I know in every social media outlet that I can utilize to get everybody to stop patronizing your business until you go back to cash. And I've seen this happen again and again as the businesses, want, especially during COVID, oh, that that cash is dirty. It's got COVID on it. You can't trade. You know, nah, that's garbage. That's absolute drivel. What we need to do as people is refuse to do business with those who refuse cash. And that's one way we can stop this, uh, this move towards a digital currency. But we also ought to do everything we can to protect our privacy. Uh, and that's a huge subject that uh, maybe we'll address in this next series as well, because um, the more information they're able to garner out of our lives, the less freedom we, we will have. Now consider uh, the message that we've tried to get across in this series. We talked about denying the federal government the ability to tax. And the ability to tax is really the first major infringement on your, your liberty. And basically, you know, it, it gets worse from there. Uh, withholding takes it a step further. You don't even see the cash. It doesn't even pass through your hands. Uh, it's the government. The government owns it. Uh, you don't own it, even though you earned it. And so there's your next step of control. So what we've got to do is we have to recognize that the contract with the federal government, the contract forming the federal government, not with the federal government, I, I stand corrected, uh, but the contract that formed the federal government should have been limited to certain explicit enumerated powers in the Constitution. They have no need for tax revenues. Those taxes should come, or the equivalent of the taxes, should come from the states as an allocation. In other words, if the federal government does its job correctly, then it has a limited need for cash. And the, the and in our case, we talked about the Council of States making this determination 
the council of states then should be in a position to say, okay, here are your funds for the next year. Don't exceed them. If you do exceed them, or if you use them wrongfully, we're going to come in and slap your head really hard. That's that's what we need. That kind of discipline, which is why you know what we proposed in this new constitution, having a, a council of states would be a method by which we could stop that uh, egregious violations that they have done of the boundaries that are supposed to be established by our constitution, limiting what they can do and, and what they cannot do. And by the way, we do the withholding reminds me that um, most Americans receive a tax return, uh, you know, April 15th or whatever. They, in other words, they're getting money back from the federal government uh, a year after they've paid those funds to the federal government, which means they actually gave the federal government a free loan. Now, the federal government didn't pay them any interest, which I think if the federal government was going to be an honest broker with us, if they're going to borrow money from us by taking too much money out of our paycheck every, every week, every other week, then they ought to pass interest on that money they borrowed from us. Instead, they get a free loan. So I would encourage folks to look very carefully at their number of exemptions and be sure that they never are in the situation where the federal government owes them money on April 15th. Uh, if, you know, if they get real close and you may owe them a little bit of money, it's better that because then you cut off that free flow of money where they are able to borrow. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe, they wind up borrowing every year and then sending the check back to the taxpayers on April 15th saying, oh, yeah, yeah, here's your return. Now, a lot of people have uh, turned that upside down. It's like, oh, yeah, I got some free money on April 15th. No, you didn't. The government got to use your money for free without paying you interest for the year that it held that money and used that money. And now they're, they're returning to you what they borrowed without paying you any interest at all. So we ought to turn that, that idea around, around in, the, in the minds of, of people. And, and obviously, one of the things we ought to call for in our elected representatives is bring an end to the IRS. The IRS has no business existing in taxing the citizens of this country. It has a role true in taxing corporations and taxing non-resident aliens, people who have a green card and are working in our country, but it has no business taxing the American people. And we ought to all upon our Congress people to bring an end to the IRS's tyranny over, over we the people, because it's completely unconstitutional, which means it's a criminal operation. It's a federal mafia it, it was what we could call it. Well, let's take a look at the nature of federal outlays. Um, there, there are two, uh, extremes, if you will. One is the constitutional extreme. And if you go back into the history of even the uh, Constitution of 1787, what you realize is that they were, you know, the, the founding generation was perfectly happy with the idea of decentralized government, but it had some limitations. That, and uh, I think coming out of the War of Independence, what they realized was that, uh, no, we really can't defend each state individually, maybe the best thing is to come together. You know, the, the uh, committees of correspondence, if you will, that originally uh, started the whole thing uh, was a, a move in that direction. And so they built in the idea of defense. And so we can look at defense, true defense, not 170 bases throughout the, the world and that kind of thing, and intervening in, in every nation and being the world's uh, placement. Not that. That's that's not defense. That's offense, if you will. But but if you look at true defense, this is, you know, physically, geographically, 
one of the most defensible areas in the world. It is bound by two of the major oceans, the, o the Atlantic and the Pacific, the Gulf of Mexico, and on the northern side, a culture that is very similar to our, ours and not threatening. On the southern side, really not threatening. They don't have the power to do it. Uh, you know, we're in an ideal position, and yet we have a military budget that is anywhere from um, it's greater than seven to eleven of the next largest military budgets in the world. So we we have to be very prudent about this and say, okay, for legitimate defense purposes, you know, that is an outlay that the federal government should undertake. But the general welfare, I mean, Madison came out and and in one of the uh, uh, federalist essays said that whole thing is an absurdity. That's not what the federal government was formed for, to give out welfare and, you know, um, to, to subsidize research and education and blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. That's not what the federal government was formed for. And so it was a poor contract. Well, that concept should have been stripped out from the very beginning. But if you get down to the limited, and I think it's the Heritage uh, Institution has estimated <laughs> that only 10% of the outlays of the federal government are constitutional. If that, if that, yeah, but the rest is unconstitutional. You don't need a taxing system, and you certainly don't want to, to hand over to a group that uh, that was created by the states. You don't want to hand over power that allows them to be the master over you. And if they can control all of your money, which they're doing right now, and plan to do even more, yeah, they have reduced you to serfdom, as you pointed out. And and just look at what they have done with those uh, trillions. Of, and we're talking about trillions of dollars spent on useless wars in the Middle East. I mean, what did we accomplish in Afghanistan? It's like if uh, you could compare what we did in Afghanistan for all the trillions of dollars spent there. It's like putting your hand into a bucket of water. And when you pull your hand out of that bucket of water, nothing has changed. <laughs> the water's there. Not a thing changed in Afghanistan. Went right back to what it was before. We're, and we just spent trillions of dollars, wasted trillions of dollars. And what did we do? We probably created more terrorists for being there in Afghanistan. And we've done the same thing with all of our wars around the Middle East and what we're doing now uh, in the Ukraine. And the, the billions of dollars are being wasted. In the, that's, a, that's a losing cause. Ukraine is a, I'm sorry, people might disagree with me on this, but uh, the Ukrainians, now the average age of the Ukrainian soldiers is in the mid 40s because all the young people are dead. All the young men are dead. Hundreds of thousands of young men dead, and and Ukraine is now you know going after middle aged people, and soon soon it'll be senior citizens, and there'll be no army left. That's a losing battle, and and any money we pour into that, which we continue to pour billions of dollars, is absolutely wasted money. And what we have done with our foreign policy and and using our military around the world, like you talk about, a hundred and forty some bases around the world. We've created more enemies against our country, more terrorists who want to come and destroy America because they hate what we have done through our military in their country. We should have just left them alone. You know, they want to do their own battles. Iraq and Iran want to fight each other. Let them fight it out. You know, we should not have been involved in so many of these wars. And our, our founders understood this clearly. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, the uh, uh, John Quincy Adams, who said, you know, we don't go around the, the world seeking monsters to destroy. That's not the purpose of our, our, our foreign policy. 
we're a friend of liberty anywhere and 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 uh, you know we'll we'll praise liberty wherever it but we're not going to go around establishing liberty or making the world safe for a democracy when we're not even a democracy we're a republic so all these things that we have been using our military for essentially since the end of world war ii to become the world's policemen in korea and vietnam and on and on it goes have been a waste and they've created a worse situation for us here at home uh in our own liberties because the military has been used against us uh uh, as citizens, because the military industrial complex is stealing our money and, and, and is restricting our liberties, as the evidence clearly shows. So, yeah, all of this needs to change. It all needs to be turned around and the military industrial complex needs to be pulled apart and go back to the limited design that, that our founders had of protecting the borders of our constant. We're not protecting our own borders. Our southern and northern border. We could bring all the troops home and just easily protect southern and northern borders uh, and, and retain our national sovereignty. That's how our military should be used, in my opinion. Well, it's interesting that another one of the challenges coming up, and uh, uh, this is this is a non-political party thing, by the way. Um, Donald Trump has indicated that he's very much interested in uh, extension of the Insurrection Act, such that it would allow him to intervene in cities when he determined that uh, things are going wrong. And uh, and you just look at this and you, you ask yourself, where are we going with this? I mean, I'll, I'll acknowledge the harm that's been done within these cities, but that is up to the cities to straighten out and their governors to straighten out. There's no need for the federal government to get involved and think in the terrible precedent of employing the military uh, first for these, these incidents that occur. But at what point does it turn against the population in general? Uh, and that's what our founder said. The, the danger of a standing army is that this standing army is going to be used against we, the people, and destroy our God-given rights. They saw that with what the uh, standing army of King George III did with the colonists and invading their houses and rifling through their papers, violating their God-given rights. We must not stand for that. And uh, we need to oppose whoever it is, Trump or anyone else that proposes uh, such an idea. Well, this is we, the people. The Constitution matters. And we are bringing you this American, uniquely American view of law and government, that there is a creator God, and our founders said that's the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. They do not come from human civil government. And that the purpose, and they stated this clearly in the Declaration of Independence, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect God-given rights. We need to understand this. We need to spread this idea. And so we invite you to invite your family and friends to join us Friday mornings, 8 a.m. for We the People, the Constitution Matters.